Are you ready? The final two letters. First is letter 30. Give you a chance as you're turning there to letter 30. We'll uh, set the context a little bit. Remember, our patient, who we've kind of gotten to know a little bit, right? You know, we've grown attached to this guy. We're feeling bad for him because he's getting beat up on all the time by this tempter. He must be in what is like the second or third night of a bombing raid in World War II. His city is being bombed. And we don't get all the details, but whether he's a soldier or not, he has to remain at a certain post and like do his duty at that post, come what may. And in the last letter, we didn't know, is he going to be brave? Is he going to be a coward? And you may recall, screw tape doesn't really care. Either make him brave and feel pride because of it, or make him a coward and feel despair. But in the midst of all this, uh, no matter what happens, he's going to be exhausted. And so Wormwood will need to capitalize on exhaustion. So letter 30 deals with two things. It deals with fatigue. Does anybody need a letter on how to deal with fatigue tonight? <laughs> exhaustion. I'm looking at teachers who are so close to the finish line of the school semester, right? I'm looking at uh, uh, moms who are carrying around kids to all different athletic activities. And, uh, no doubt. Um, uh, fatigue is real and the word real so letter 30 we're going to talk about fatigue and it does I can't really see the connection that it's super related but he, he wants to talk about the use of the word real so those two things that's the topic of letter 30 here we go notice by the way how screw tape is all about backstabbing He's been checking up on Wormwood through Hell's internal secret police unit. Remember, that's a key principle. No one trusts anyone else in Hell. My dear Wormwood, I sometimes wonder whether you think you've been sent into the world for your own amusement. I gather, not from your miserably inadequate report, but from that of the infernal police, that the patient's behavior during the first raid has been the worst possible. He's been very frightened and thinks himself a great coward and therefore feels no pride, but he's done everything his duty demanded and perhaps a bit more. <clears throat> Remember, John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death of doing something and saddling up anyway. And that's what he did. So he, did, he wasn't super brave, so he can't feel pride, but he did his duty, so he's not a coward. It's like, oh, from Satan's perspective, like, did he do any sins? Look what he says. The work... Against this disaster, all you can produce on the credit side is a burst of ill temper with a dog that tripped him up, some excessive cigarette smoking, and the forgetting of a prayer. Oh, come on. That's it? Getting mad and kicking a dog, smoking too much, and forgetting your prayers? That's just past the time on a Thursday. That's no... Come on. What is the use of whining to me about your difficulties? If you're proceeding... I'm just kidding. I, don't, I would never kick a dog. What's the use of whining to me about your difficulties? Oh, oh, if you're proceeding on the enemy's idea of justice and suggesting that your opportunities and intentions should be taken into account, then I'm not sure that a charge of heresy does not lie against you. At any rate, you will soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. Woo! So he's pretty upset with Wormwood, and he's saying, if you think that I'm going to treat you like God, where God would say, well, God might consider what you've been through, or he'd look at the motives of the heart. No, no, no. With hell, there's no mercy. Bring back food or be food. Remember, hell is the opposite of love. 
And the opposite of love is devouring one another. Bring us food or be food. The only constructive, next paragraph, the only constructive passage in your letter is where you say that you still expect good results from the patient's fatigue. Okay, here we go. How does the enemy want to use exhaustion in your life? How do you think, you, you who've been in this study for a long time now, how do you think the enemy wants to use fatigue? Do you think the enemy wants to uh, have you uh, uh, completely exhausted or never exhausted? Which do you think the enemy prefers? He doesn't care. That gives me hope. Those of you who said it doesn't matter, you're exactly right. You're starting to get the hang of how the enemy mind works. He doesn't care. He will use whatever he wants or needs to to get to draw you away from the enemy. He really doesn't care about your circumstances. So when it comes to fatigue, it's, it kind of sounds like a broken record. <clears throat> but he says, okay, okay, so he's tired. That, well, that's well enough, but it won't fall into your hands. Fatigue can produce extreme gentleness and quiet of mind, and even something like vision. If you've often seen mid, men led by it into anger, malice, and impatience, that's because those men had efficient tempters. Ooh, those little shots fired at, at Wormwood there. In other words, on a scale of fatigue where, let's just say, let's just say up here on the fatigue scale, up here you are, I'll put a little flower, you are fresh as a daisy, and down here you are exhausted. Okay, really tired, cranky, and down here, you're like, I, I mean, I don't even, like, I don't even have an emoji for this. I can't draw a skull of crossbones, but you're like so far past exhaustion at that point that you're like, I don't even care anymore. And he's saying, believe it or not, if you get your patient all the way to this point, you've actually gone too far because he may just become calm and gentle. You want him just, like, do you remember when I said a couple weeks ago that Satan doesn't want you to hit rock bottom because if you hit rock bottom, you might wake up. So he wants to keep you like two inches above rock bottom your whole life. Miserable and in despair, but never so far that you'll wake up to your addiction or your sin or your evil or whatever it is. So that's how he wants to do it with fatigue. Watch. He writes, the paradoxical thing is that moderate fatigue is a better soil for peevishness, you know, um, getting ticked off all the time than absolute exhaustion. This depends partly on physical causes, but partly on something else. It's not fatigue simply as such that produces the anger, but unexpected demands on a man already tired. Listen to this sentence, you might underline it. Whatever men expect, they soon come to think they have a right to. The sense of disappointment can, with very little skill on our part, be turned into a sense of injury. That's very good. A sense of disappointment Satan will want to turn, watch that, watch for that in your own life. Watch for that. Disappointment. How do you spell disappointment? Is it one S and this, like this? Disappointment. Okay. Please tell me I'm not the only one who, when you get in front of everybody, you immediately cannot spell. Okay, I'm not alone then. All right. This would be a great word to put back in your, back in your vocabulary. Because I know, I know some people that, that for everything that goes wrong, somebody had an agenda. Somebody was out to get me. I've been injured. The idea is not hurt, but, you know, attacked. Hey, maybe, or maybe it just didn't go your way. It's okay to allow for the fact that you don't have to look for somebody to take revenge on. You don't have, it just didn't go your way, right? So disappointment is different than the injury, but Satan wants to take every disappointment and make it injury. How does he do that? With fatigue. Fatigue. And it's not just that you're tired. It's that you had a right... This is the example I thought of. 
When you're fresh as a daisy, watch this. When you're fresh as a daisy and you've pulled into um, a restaurant and somebody, um, you see a spot and um, let's do it this way. Back up, back up. Uh, when you're fresh as a daisy, it doesn't matter. You're willing to walk, it doesn't matter if you have to park far away. Let's do it this way. You're exhausted. You have been at a travel ball tournament and it's baseball in the spring. The coldest weather known to man is not the heights of the Himalayas. It's travel ball in spring in the bleachers. You're frozen to death. Uh, up ahead is a Hampton Inn. Uh, no, it's uh, La Quinta. La Quinta Inn is, Span La Quinta is Spanish for behind Denny's. And if you, if you, as you're getting closer and closer, you see it there in the distance. It's Cracker Barrel, and all you want is a spot at Cracker Barrel. Now watch this. Watch this. You're exhausted, but you're not yet here. You're fatigued, deeply fatigued, but not yet exhausted. If in that moment it's dark, the kids are crying. All you want is a good meal and a, and a hotel room. If there's no spots, you're not mad. You have to park completely on the other block, and you have to walk. You're not mad. But if you pull up, you put your blinker on, you wait, and somebody pulls out, you've waited this whole time, and somebody flies in and gets in there, now you're furious. What's the difference? Did you know there is, in fact, no difference? You didn't have a spot before, and you don't have a spot now. The difference is, instead of being disappointed, now you're mad. And you're, you will lose your religion on that person that did that, and you'll consider this an injury. And Satan knows that, and he's trying to move you from disappointment to injury because you were entitled to that spot. It never crossed your mind that, well, eh, sometimes you get a spot, sometimes you don't. No, they did that. But Screwtape also knows, what if you're exhausted beyond that point? Now you've gone too far because we've all been there. Where someone cuts you off and pulls in the spot, and you're like, I'm literally too tired to even care. Have the spot. Have all the spots. We're parking on the interstate tonight. I don't care. Right. And now what? You've become, you know what you just did? You were gentle. You were kind. That's, that's like the opposite of what Screwtape wants. So, you, so he let fatigue get too far. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you think of it in this way, you realize how diabolical the enemy is. He never wants you to get to a point where you're just putting one foot in front of the other. Well, that's what happened to this patient during the bombing raid. He's been so fatigued and stressed out that he's like, I just got to do my duty. Whatever happens, bombs are falling. He's like, what else? I don't even care. Uh, and he says, see, you, Swarmwood, you've messed up. You're not a good tempter. It is after men have given in to the irremediable. In other words, you can't do anything about it. After they've despaired of relief and ceased to think even a half hour ahead, the dangers of humbled and gentle weariness begin. In other words, screw takes hand. If they ever get to the point where they're like, Lord, I don't know. I don't even understand. I'm all, literally, all I can do this day, I'm so stressed out. I'm so filled with anxiety. I'm so depressed. I'm so discouraged. All I can do to get out of bed is if you'll, I tell you what, God, I'll get through this day. I tell you what, I'll pick my, I won't even pick my feet up. I'll put my foot down if you'll lift the next step up again. And be completely dependent on God. Screw takes like, that's actually where God wants his people to be. Completely dependent on him. So, how do they avoid that as a demon? Here's what they say. To produce the best results from the patient's fatigue, therefore, you must feed him with false hopes. Put into his mind plausible reasons for believing that, you know, the air raid will not be repeated. Uh, keep him comforting himself with the thought of, oh, how much he'll enjoy his bed next night. Exaggerate the weariness by making him think it'll soon be over, for men usually feel that a strain could have been endured no longer at the very moment when it was ending, or when they think it's ending. It is, 
As in the problem of cowardice, the thing to avoid is the total commitment. Whatever he says, let his inner resolution be not to bear whatever comes to him, but to bear it, you know, for a reasonable period. And let the reasonable period be shorter than the trials likely to last. It need not be much shorter. In attacks on patience, chastity, and fortitude, the fun is to make the man yield just when, had he but known it, relief was almost in sight. Oh, this is dirty, pool. This is bad. Watch what screw tape does. <clears throat> screw tape. In your life, the enemy. Let's just say this is the sort of the temptation, okay? And he has to keep up. It starts here, and he has to keep up a particular temptation, whatever it is, on your patience, chastity, fortitude, whatever it is. And he has to keep it up, okay? And this is your ability to last, okay? And you're running neck and neck, okay? There's a point where you're like, ugh, I give up. Screwtape says the best, the best is our temptation was going to end right there. And you gave up right there. We win. Had you but known victory was just, I mean, just across the next bend. Keep them blind to this fact. And Screwtape says the great laughter in hell, the great fun, the great sport of a human soul is to have them give up when victory was just around the corner. Now. You say, how does Screwtape know and why does he do this? <sighs> Screwtape knows when humans give up because he's been watching humans for thousands of years. Okay? So when, the point is, whenever you're giving up on temptation, I'm here to tell you it's too early to give up, and it's probably just hold on and victory's right around the corner. That's what I'm trying to encourage you, to combat Screwtape. Okay? The other thing I want you to think about is this. Your enemy, the devil, does not, unlike God, the devil does not have unlimited resources. Did you know that? The devil, unlike God, does not have om omnipresence. He can't be everywhere at once. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit of God can be everywhere at once. Satan can't be. He only has a limited number of demons. Did you think about that? He has finite resources. So for him, it is inefficient. In hell, it is inefficient for him to waste all this extra temptation. So efficiency in hell demands that you've got to stop the temptation just after, just long enough until the patient gives in and then stop the temptation because all this is wasted from hell's perspective. You say, how do I know they can't be everywhere at once? When Jesus cast the demon-oppressed man, remember Legion, the garrison demoniac, he had all those demons. He cast the demons, had to flee the man and enter the pigs. And the pigs went careening off the cliff. Do you remember the story? The point is they weren't in the pigs and the man at the same time. They're either in the man and not in the pigs, or they're in the pigs and no longer in the man. But they can't be everywhere at once. Therefore, his resources, I believe, are limited. And so, if you'll just hang on a little bit longer, the resources in you are greater than the resources of the one who's in the world. And then Screwtape just takes a cheap shot at humans. When a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife come home exhausted, he writes, I, don't, I do not know whether he's likely to meet the girl under conditions. Remember his girlfriend. I don't know if he's likely to meet the girl under conditions of strain or not. If he does, make full use of the fact that up to a certain point, fatigue makes women talk more and men talk less. Much secret resentment even between lovers can be raised from this. <laughs> so Screwtape gets in a uh, cheap shot. Don't, um, don't play into Screwtape's hands and show this to your spouse. Uh, remember, it's a letter from the demon. Okay. <laughs> now back to the patient. 
He shifts gears and moves from talking about uh, fatigue to talking about doubt and what's real. Watch how this unfolds. Presently, the scenes he's now witnessing will not provide material for an intellectual attack on his faith. Your previous failures have put, it in, have put that out of your power. But there is a sort of attack on the emotions, which can still be tried. Okay, let's talk about that. It turns on making him feel. When first he sees, for example, human remains plastered on a wall, that this is what the world is really like, and that all his religion has been a fantasy. All right, everybody follow what he's talking about. Get him, in other words, to think the horrors of war are real. That's real life. But his faith in God, that's just spiritual stuff. That's fantasy. You say, well, how could demons get us to go there? Because they get us confused about the word real. He's going to try one of his oldest tricks where he's going to use real in two different ways and he's going to twist it depending on what suits his temptation at that moment. He writes, you will notice that we have got them completely fogged, totally confused, about the meaning of the word real. Now, you get a gold star. You are an honor student in this class. If you can remember where Screwtape first brought up the idea of real. He used it in a scene where he's like, never let him question, well, that's real, and all this stuff about God and my thinking, that's just, that's just illusory. That's an illusion. It was all the way back in letter one. If you'll go back to letter one, and if you want to turn there, it's kind of fun. It's the second paragraph of the whole book. Do you, does anybody remember the stream? We talked about Netflix, the constant stream, 24-hour news, the stream. Look in the second paragraph. He had a guy, he talks about how he had a guy once who was like, he was sitting in the British Museum, and he started thinking like about God, and he was like, okay, I need to rush outside. And when he got outside, he saw the bus and the newspaper, and he goes, now that's real. It never crossed his mind that maybe the God stuff was real. What made him think this was real? So look at what it says. Uh, 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 you've been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business, this is the bottom of the second paragraph of the very first letter, your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life. And don't let him ask what he means by, quote, real. Here we are at the very end of the book, and he's still back. Uh, I think Lewis does that, that he, he kind of does a, a, a callback to the very first letter to show us that screw tapes methods are never going to change. There's nothing creative about them. There's nothing particularly uh, 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 full of ingenuity. He's just using the same old stuff. Uh, this gets deep here, but hopefully uh, we can explain it with a helpful illustration. They tell each other, so what is real? What is real? Well, they tell each other of some great spiritual experience. All that really happened was you heard some music in a lighted building. Well, here, real means the bare physical facts, separated from the other elements in the experience they actually had. On the other hand, they'll also say, well, it's all very well discussing that high dive as you sit here in an armchair, but wait till you get up there and see what it's really like. Well, here, real is being used in the opposite sense. To mean not the physical facts, which they already know while discussing the matter in armchairs, but the emotional effect those facts will have on a human conscious, consciousness. Very clever. You see what he did? In one case, just the raw facts are what's real. So a kid comes back uh, from a camp and, man, I was saved. I had this experience with God. No, you were in a dark room. There was some emotional music playing. Therefore, the dark room is emotional. But that, uh, sorry, the dark room is real, but all that emotion's fake. And yet, they use real the other way 
when you're sitting there looking up at the high dive, until you get up there like Michael Squints Polidorus and look at Wendy Peppercorn, and you're standing, anybody, Sandlot? And you get out there, and you stand up there, then when you're sitting down here, you're saying, hey, you can look at the height of the diving board and you can talk about human mass and you can say gravity and you can say I'll be safe, but you don't know what it's really like till you get up there and experience. Everybody see that? In that case, all the facts don't matter, but the emotions are what's real. It's a switcheroo. How can it be that sometimes the word real means all the emotional stuff and the facts don't matter? And sometimes the facts are what's real and all the emotional stuff doesn't matter. According to screw tape, which is right, which is wrong? He doesn't care. Look what he says. It doesn't matter. Either application of the word could be defended. Our business is to keep the two going at once so that the emotional value of the word real can be placed now on one side of the account, now on the other, as it happens to suit us. How can we use this application of the definition to suit us as tempters? The general rule, which we have now pretty well established among them, is that in all their experiences which can make them happier or better, only the physical facts are real. The spiritual stuff is subjective. In all experiences which can discourage or corrupt them, spiritual elements are the main reality, and to ignore them is to be an escapist. That is so thick and heady stuff. Can we have an example? Yes, he gives you several. Thus, in birth, the blood and pain are, quote, real. The rejoicing, a mere subjective point of view. <laughs> but in death, the terror and ugliness reveal what death really means. All right, let's explain that first example. In other words, he says, make them think what's real about birth is the pain and the blood. And since that's a natural process of the body, forget all the joy of new life and all the love and all the emotions. Stuff. That's just an illusion. What's real is just the pain. But if that's true, stay with me now, if that's true, then when we die, death is just the process of the body breaking down. So any pain or loss or fear we feel, that should just be an illusion because you said that's how it is with birth. No, screw tape says. Then when it comes to death, we switch it and we tell you the fear is real and the body breaking down is just an illusion. The terror is what's real. Well, that's, that's not fair. You're changing the use of the real. Exactly. He gives a second example. The hatefulness of a hated person is real. So in hatred, you see men as they are. You're, you're, you're disillusioned. In other words, you see the truth. But the loveliness of a loved person, that's just a subjective haze, concealing a, quote, real core of sexual appetite or economic association. Same thing. The hatefulness is what real. Anything other than that's an illusion. Okay, well, what about this lovely person who's loving? Uh, in that case, um, I mean, because if the hatefulness is what's real about a person, then the loveliness should be real. No, in that case, the loveliness is the illusion and the real must be something else. But that's not fair. Exactly. Third example. Wars and poverty are really horrible, but peace and plenty are just mere physical facts about which men happen to have certain sentiments. Again, the cold hard facts of war and poverty, Satan wants you to convince you that's real. Well, then the cold hard facts of peace and abundance, aren't those real? No. Those are just warm, fuzzy emotions. And this could go on and on and on, right? Uh... Uh, I, don't believe in, I don't believe in Christianity. Why not? Because I believe in what's real, what can be verified by eyewitness testimony. Okay, you know Christianity started because of eyewitness testimony about the resurrection. No, 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 that's not real, suddenly. You can't, you, can't, you can't change the parameters. I thought of this really crazy and super niche example, and maybe there's like three people in the world that'll be like, it finally makes sense. Um, but it's like, if you're going to pay the tax, so to speak, 
on having the emotional burden of being told that's not real and this is, then at least get the benefit when it benefits you. So this is my crazy example and I offer it here in very, with very little hope. Say you're saving for retirement in two vehicles, in a 401k and something called a Roth IRA. I, I know. With the 401k, you don't pay any income taxes now, you'll have to pay it later. But with the Roth, you bite the bullet and pay the income tax now, but you don't have to pay it later. So imagine you come to your retirement years and you start to withdraw from the 401k and you hate it, but you now have to pay Uncle Sam. Ah, but now it's time to get the payoff. You withdraw from your Roth because it's all tax-free. Imagine in that moment if the IRS said, no, we changed the rules and decided you have to pay tax on that now. You'd be like, somebody just cut me off yesterday in Cracker Barrel and I held my peace, but now I'm going to lose it. Why? Because the whole reason I paid back then was to get the benefit now. And, that, and that's what he's saying. Hey, if, if, if you're going to use what's real, if real can be emotions when it's good, then it has to be, he, he, he's saying, don't let, don't let, uh, well, here's how he puts it. He, uh, he, he says, uh, the creatures are always accusing one another of wanting to have the, to eat the cake and have it. Have you ever heard the expression, you want to have your cake and eat it too? A little kid wants his Halloween candy, but he wants to eat it. But if I eat it, I won't have it anymore. Uh, what do I do? He's like, the fact of the matter is, thanks to our labors, they're more often in the predicament, predicament of paying for the cake and not eating it. You're getting all the burdens of fear with none of the benefits working in your favor. Your patient, properly handled, will have no difficulty in regarding his emotion at the sight of human entrails as a revelation of reality, and his emotion at the sight of happy children or fair weather? Well, that's just mere sentiment. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. This is, I don't, who knows if I did a good job explaining uh, this concept of real and not in letter 30, but I tell you where the, where the rubber hits the road for me in this. I have done my fair share of preaching at youth camps. Does anybody remember just old-fashioned summer youth camps? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Church camp. So many students have the same experience at church camp. You're in a spiritual rut, you feel very low, and then, buddy, you get on that church van, and it doesn't smell very godly, but you make your way to church camp, and then, I mean, Monday night, you're just like listening to the sermons, and you're around other Christians. Tuesday, you're away from your phones, and you're starting to pay attention, and there's other believers, and Wednesday, and you haven't really eaten really well, so you can't tell. Is it God? Is it gas? Is it both? I don't know. And by Thursday night of youth camp, it doesn't matter what the preacher's preaching, that's just cry night, and like, everybody's getting saved, everybody's coming forward, you're like, I, I, I will never sin again. I want to go home and do a backflip off the balcony and clothesline the devil in the face. Like, I am so fired up for Jesus. I am hugging people that I never even, my little sister who normally I don't talk to comes up to me at youth camp. I'm like, I love you. I'm just loving everybody. Jesus is Lord of my life. I'm never going to sin again. I'm on the spiritual mountaintop. And two weeks later after camp, right? Where am I? Well, that was fun. Kick a dog. Right? That, you know, that that was fun, but now youth camp's over. And everybody knows the worst part of the spiritual mountaintop is this crash back down. And I have had so many people tell me, so many young people tell me, I've been coming to this camp for years. And I said, what's the hardest part? They said, the hardest part, Pastor Tom, it's always the same thing. I feel so close to God when I'm here. But then i got to go back to the real world. And I used to just bemoan that and pray with them. But I've started challenging them. And I challenge them in this way. Who says that's the real world? What if your closeness to God is reality? And that's the shadow lands. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't this be your reality? 
And all this is illusion. It's a house of cards built by the enemy to keep you from what's really real. And if you uh, get into C.S. Lewis and start reading books like uh, The Great Divorce, he says people think you float off to heaven and become sort of ethereal and ghost-like. He said, do you realize your earthly body couldn't even have enough heft to it to bend a blade of heaven's grass? It's more real. To heaven, the people on earth, you look like ghosts. You look all ethereal. The reality is God. This is the Shadowlands. Flip the script. And usually after the time I say that, they're like, I understand any of that, Pastor Don, but I'd still cry night, so praise the Lord. And they run off. I tried. <laughs> hey, let me tell you about a 401k. They're like, no, it's even worse. Anyway. Anyway, that's my, that's my speech on real. Okay. We, we come now, this is it, the final letter. And all is lost for screw tape. And all is won for our patient. Because this is the final letter, and because it contains, to me, some of the most exquisite writing, I thought what would be best is I'll just set up each paragraph with a few comments. And other than explaining any words I think are difficult words, other than that, I will just read each paragraph pretty much without interruption. So I'll set up the paragraph, read it, set up the next paragraph, read it, set up the next paragraph, until we're done. Here we go. Letter 31. Letter 31. The end. My dear, my very dear, Wormwood, my poppet, my pig's knee, how mistakenly, now that all is lost, you come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affection in which I address you meant nothing from the beginning. Oh, far from it. Rest assured, my love for you and your love for me are as like as two peas. I've always desired you as you pitiful fool desired me. The difference is that I am the stronger. I think they will give you to me now, or a bit of you. Love you? <laughs> Why, yes, as dainty a morsel as ever I grew fat on. Oh, that's horrifying. Now, in the next paragraph, he describes the moment of the patient's death from hell's perspective. We can gather that a bomb must have hit him and taken him out. The death of a Christian, from Satan's perspective, is, of course, like having your prey snatched from your fingers. And the first thing our man sees is none other than wormwood. Let us read. You have let a soul slip through your fingers. The howl of sharpened famine for that loss re-echoes at this moment through all the levels of the kingdom of noise down to the very throne itself. It makes me mad to think of it. How well I know what happened at the instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? As he saw you for the first time and recognized the part you had had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think and let it be the beginning of your agony, what he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell-like tetter. That's a skin disease like eczema. As if he shuffled off for good and all, a, a, a as if he shuffled off for good and all, a defiled, wet, clinging garment. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days, taking off dirty and uncomfortable clothes and splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their ease limbs. What then of this final stripping, this complete cleansing? Imagine to be forever free in an instant of temptation, to be beyond temptation's grasp, to be truly free. Uh, if you have 
struggled your whole life with guilt, with failure, with fear, with condemnation, with anxiety or depression or despair, to be utterly free. Like the old hymn says, I'll fly away, O glory, right? So to be utterly free of that, never to experience it again, like stripping off an old, gross, wet clothes, like a, like a scab from an old sore. What an image. Well, in the next paragraph, Screwtape bemoans the fact that in a way, a bomb taking him out, taking, taking him out in one shot makes it even worse from Screwtape's perspective. Watch. The more one thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theater, no false hopes of life. Sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment, it seemed to be all our world. The scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on the lips and in the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. Next moment, all this was gone. Gone like a bad dream, never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered, fooled. Did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, the earthborn vermin entered the new life? How all his doubts became, in the twinkling of an eye, ridiculous? I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course. It was always like this. All, all horrors have followed the same course. They're getting worse and worse and forcing you into a kind of bottleneck till at the very moment when you thought you must be crushed, behold, you were out of the narrows and all was suddenly well. Huh. The extraction hurt more and more, and then the tooth was out. The dream became a nightmare, and then you woke. So it's like you die and you die, and then you're beyond death. Huh. How could I ever have doubted it? It's so good, right? I mean, this is beautiful. Don't lose sight of this. We will win. God will get us safely home. Hang on. Help is coming. The image I thought of was, uh, it's always darkest just before dawn, right? Hang on. In the next paragraph, he describes the moment that he sees not only, the patient sees not only his tempter Wormwood, but all his, I love this, all his guardian angels. And I guess Lewis, he sees people. I think Lewis is here referring to Hebrews 11 and 12. If you know Hebrews 11 and 12, that's that great hall of faith chapter where by faith Noah did this and by faith Enoch did this and by faith Abraham did this. And it's like in Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. I don't know if you've ever run a race, even a 5K, much less a marathon. But uh, when you run a, a long race, uh, there is like, as you start to really need some encouragement, as you really need help, especially in a marathon, you get to mile 20. I'm in, I'm in mile 20 of the New York City Marathon, 1920 is a humble brag. And I... Um, and I started like, I'm not saying I was hallucinating, but I was like imagining a conversation with my dad. And I'm like, wait, dad's not here. Uh-oh, I am hallucinating. And then I had a banana and that helped a little. But, um, but boy, you need some help. And there, when you come around and you start heading into Central Park, you see uh, finishers with their medals. And that's not discouraging, because like, you, you're going to get like 20,000th place, okay? So you're not trying to win. <laughs> Uh, that's so encouraging because when you see finishers with their medals and they're holding like bottles of water and they got the medal, it's like there must be a finish line somewhere because look, you know, and then there's a bunch, and as you get closer, a bunch of finishers and they've all got their medals on, they've got their bib on, they're sweating, and it's like, you know what it feels like? It feels like a great cloud of witnesses. That's every time I read Hebrews 12, I think about the people who finish their right, finish their race, being like, 
You can do it. I'm proof. <laughs> you know, like we're here. We're almost there. I think Lewis is talking about he sees angels. He sees the guardian angels. Because really, this whole book, think about it. We've seen this guy's, if you will, guardian tempter. But we haven't heard a thing about the guardian angels. The Bible says you also have, there, there's also, he's given angels charge concerning you. So now he meets those angels. And he meets, I think, some of those who've died in the Lord, who in glory are somehow part of that cloud of witnesses cheering on the saints who are still in the race. And the angels have been fighting for him the whole time. Okay, okay, here it is. As he saw you, he also saw them. Capital them. That's the angels. I know how it was. You reeled back, dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he had ever been by bombs, the degradation of it, that this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before whom you, a spirit, could only cower? Perhaps you'd hope that the awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy. But that's the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortalize, and yet they're not strange. He had no faintest conception till that very hour of how they would look and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew he'd always known them and realized what part each of them had played at many an hour in his life when he had supposed himself alone so that now he could say to them one by one, not, who are you? But, so, it was you all the time. All that they were and said at this meeting woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him which had haunted his solitudes from infancy was now at last explained. That central music in every pure experience which had always just evaded memory was now at last recovered. <clears throat> Recognition made him free of their company almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. <laughs> Only you were left outside. What a picture of heaven's reunion. To get to behold the guardian angels. Where, really, some of you, some of you, literally, you would be dead right now without the direct intervention of God in your life. That's not hyperbole. That's not blown out of proportion. That's just the literal fact. You know what I'm talking about. You were there. You know the very, you know the four-wheeler. You know the curve in the road. You know, and yet here you are, and you're going to meet that angel. It's like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about that night. Woo, man, what I had to do to keep you out of that ditch or whatever, right? And you'll know, some of you. You have never met some people who've prayed over you. So this was your great-grandmother, and you don't remember her. And she would stand over your crib, and she would pray over you. Now, here's what I believe. Those memories are in you. You just can't call them up, but they've got to be in there somewhere. It happened. You experienced it. And so there's this, Lewis imagines there's this faint recollection of somebody who did that in your life. But when you meet them, it'll be like, you're it. Like, you're the voice, or you're the, you're the prayer, or whatever. What a, what a the incredible imagery. And the demons are left out of all this. Why? Because they, they, they don't love. There's no, there's no, there's, if you're not going to live under God's authority, you don't get any of this. Well, in the next paragraph, Screwtape says, then he lays eyes on, of course, here we come to the climax, not on the angels, not on those beloved saints who've gone on before, but on Jesus himself. And he bows down before Jesus, and Wormwood comments on that. And Screwtape says, yeah, once the man sees Jesus, all our temptations fly out the door. Us trying to tempt a man who's laid eyes on Jesus is as effective as, well, I won't give away his analogy, but you'll read for yourself. It is a memorable, in my opinion, analogy, <laughs> crude and memorable. And Screwtape ends his letter with a theme he's come back to over and over. 
And the very end, he's going to say, he just can't figure out what is God's motive in all this. And we know, of course, God's motive is love. And it's the very thing Screwtape will never figure out. Because all he knows is eat or be eaten. And that is his plan for Wormwood. Let's read it and enjoy. He saw not only them, he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him. It's clarity itself. And where's the form of a man you would like? If you could, to interpret the patient's prostration in the presence, his self-abhorrence and utter knowledge of his sins, oh yes, Wormwood, a clearer knowledge even than yours, on the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven, but it's all nonsense. No, pains he may still have to encounter, but they embrace those pains. They wouldn't barter them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could once have tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he'd loved all his life and believed to be dead, is alive and even now at his door. <laughs> That's a pretty gross analogy, but it's effective. He is caught up into that world where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values and all our arithmetic is dismayed. Once more, the inexplicable meets us. Next to the curse of useless tempters like yourself, the greatest curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he is really up to. Alas, alas, that knowledge in itself so hateful and mawkish, that means sappy or sentimental, such a mawkish thing should yet be necessary for power. Sometimes I'm almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection in the face of all temptations, isn't that a great line? In the face of temptations, he's having to overcome temptation. He's the tempter. Oh, okay, it's fine. <laughs> all this is saying to me is the conviction, our realism, our rejection, in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, must win in the end. Meanwhile, I have you to settle with. Most truly do I sign myself your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. <sighs> and I have allowed time for questions. That's it, guys. We did it. Congratulations. My prayer is that this study will, above all, encourage you saints to persevere. Uh, screw tape is strong, but he is stronger. Press on to the finish. In 1952, a young Florence Chadwick, who was known for great feats of uh, swimming and athleticism, stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather that day was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close. She could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, quote, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I hope that in some small way, this book encourages you just a little bit to see through the fog and see a little bit of the reality of what we're up against. And the more self-aware we are and the more we read books like this and think deeply about the faith, 
The goal is not so we just swell our heads full of knowledge. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter. It's not the one I'm thinking of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul discusses food sacrifice to the idol, he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But it's, so, so it's not knowledge for knowledge's sake, but knowledge for love's sake, uh, I, I hope, will help us see that we're not as far as we think we are. The shore it might just be less than half a mile away. So don't give up. Whatever temptation you're going through, don't give up. <coughs> and that's it. Where, where's Jackie? Jackie? Oh, Jackie may be helping. I, my daughter is... Uh, uh, oh, oh, she's got a baby. <laughs> okay. Um... So Jackie and I wanted to bless you guys a little bit, and uh, I mentioned the race, you get medals. So I don't have medals for everybody, but I am so proud of each and every one of you uh, for making it through this study. Uh, many of you are watching online, and when I say many, I mean like 80. Um, I know that we had 150 on the first night, and I think last week we had like 90. That's a pretty good attrition rate. What was it really? 90s ministerial, was it like 80? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm so proud of you. And so for each and every one of you, and our, we already talked about get this for your wife who's helping in the, the children, she's been here faithfully, uh, I have a diploma for each and every one of you. And you can act all too cool that this doesn't mean anything to you. I know, I know. And you should feel proud. It says diploma certificate, which is the most generic title for a diploma. This certifies that I did it. Big bold letters, I did it. And here, I'll just read what I wrote. And I filled it with screw tape quotes. I, the holder of this diploma, have successfully completed the spring 2023 study of the screw tape letters at Coleman First Baptist Church. I am a learned person because, quote, only the learned read old books. It wasn't always easy, but, quote, if only the will to walk is really there, God is pleased even with my stumbles. I have learned not to rely on feelings since, quote, the devil's cause is never more in danger than when a human looks around upon a universe, form, form which, of course, there's a typo. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> um, you know, uh, sometimes you get puffed up and you teach this great class and God's like, I got I to gotta humble him. And Jackie knows of all things that are going it, to, it's, I'm, I'm almost physically sick, but I'm receiving, no, I don't want you to redo it. I want to receive this. You hear me on YouTube. I just want to receive it as a gift from God. And it's just, it's just raw material for perseverance. Anyway, a human looks all around a universe form which every trace of God, every trace of him seems to have vanished and still obeys. I intend to keep learning and growing in Christ and occasionally using spell check. Not just fixing my attention on, quote, the stream of immediate sense experiences, but on God, knowing that one day being called home will be, quote, both glory and honor beyond what we deserve and the healing of our old ache. That last quote is not in screw tape. It's from The Weight of Glory, which is an essay he, he wrote that's even better than screw tape letters. The weight of glory. So I put that last quote hoping it would tease you into checking out the weight of glory. April 26, 2023. I signed it and I Googled C.S. Lewis's signature and he signed it as well, which I thought was I thought was cool. Yeah. And the verse on there is first John chapter four, verse four, which says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 